0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 4 of the Eric Ritland isn't so bad podcast. First off, thanks to everybody for listening to the first 3 episodes. They've gotten a really great response and I really appreciate everybody that's been listening and sharing the episodes. As always, you can check out my work at musicinminnesota.com where I'm editor and a writer as a matter of fact, every Friday I come out with articles. And this week it's about the weird tracks by Creedence Clearwater Revival. The title is something like five songs you'd never think this band band was capable of or something like that. And it's about their more experimental stuff. And one song that might be one of the most beautiful songs of the 60s. Actually, well, I was going to say, it might have been a song from an album in 1970. But technically, that's still the 60s, according to the stupid literalist. But anyway, I digress. You can also find my work at here.by. That's H-E-A-R dot B-Y. And find out more about my music at ericritland.com. That's Eric with a K. As a matter of fact, on the music front, I have a couple of things going on. One huge announcement that I'll go over right now, and then one thing that I've announced that is still pretty cool. On August 16th, I'm going to be releasing an album called A Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus, which might sound really weird and goofy, and it's not a religious album at all, but that's the title of the book that Elvis was reading when he was found dead. (laughs) Which might seem kind of morbid, but one of the key songs on this album is called Rock and Roll is Dead. And I wrote and recorded this entire album this month. As a matter of fact, I'm still in the middle of it, to be honest. All the songs are written, but they still need to be recorded and mixed. More information will be forthcoming, but uh, it's only going to be available digitally for one day, for 24 hours, on March March 16th. That's an Uncle duplo album. On August 16th. So it'll only be available for the 24 hours, but I am going to be putting together a very limited CD run that I'm going to be hand-making each of them myself. More information about that will be forthcoming, but that's going to be super cool, and I'm really looking forward to getting this out there because, man, this album really kind of gets to the heart of where I'm at and where the world's at right now with all the social unrest and with uh, the pandemic and everything. Like, I try to do a songwriting that I've talked about In the several episodes so far i make it universal i try to make it something that everybody can get something out of and see something in and feel like it's about them but it's also personal about me as well it kind of rides that line that like i said i've talked about definitely when i'm discussing my own material and in the final thoughts so i'm very excited for that uh be looking out for more information about that in the near future also see this was a very spur of the moment thing i wasn't sure if i was going to get done with this or what i was going to do with it but i really feel There's a lot of momentum behind these 10 songs so i'm doing in the middle of another project (laughs) which is the floating bridge reissue in 2008 my alternative rock band floating bridge came out with an album self-titled in fact and i'm going to be reissuing it on september 18th this will really be its first real release i did come out with a limited run kind of like what i'm going to do for a scientific search when it was recorded in 2008. But I don't even know if you could find any copies of it. That's how limited the run was. So it's finally being reissued, remastered. There's going to be some great liner notes. I'm really excited about that. And the first single, Promises, Help Me Tonight, a double A-sided single with a couple of outtakes on there to make like a full EP to make it worth your time and money, was released last Friday. I talked about the one side of the single, Promises, Last week on the show, and this week I'm going to be talking about the other side of the single, Help Me Tonight. So I'm also very excited about that. So thank you to everyone who listens once again and shares the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, let's get to questions for the week. The first one comes from Jason and Woodbury. Are there any bands that you think have few or no bad songs? You know, the first one that comes to mind is Creedence Clearwater Revival. Now, granted, you have to like their style to like any of their songs. But basically, if you like one of their songs, you'll like them all. Because there's no significant dip between their best and worst songs. And that's partially because they didn't have a huge discography, although they came out with seven records in three years which is crazy to come out with that many records in such a short amount of time and to have basically all killer no filler throughout the entire things it was really amazing that period that John Fogarty had and if you listen to those Creedence records which I suggest that you do the album tracks are almost always as good as the hits or at least they would I guess I would say that for lesser bands they would be their greatest songs but the CCR hits are so huge and amazing that it's hard to really it's hard to get there every single time But CCR was always good. They didn't have any clunkers. They had some weird experimental stuff that I enjoy, but the excesses of psychedelia haunted everyone at that point. And their last record, where the rest of the band members wrote songs, wasn't as great. I guess I would say all the John Fogerty songs are good. Other bands were all the songs, or what is it? Few or no bad songs. I guess another one that I'd say that, once again, you have to like one of their songs to like them all would be The Doors. Because as far as... Their songs being consistently good for what they were doing, they did that. Some people, I think unfairly, don't like The Doors because they don't like the the aura of Jim Morrison so they let that turn them off which is too bad because there's a lot of great stuff to discover if you go beneath that it's really tough because the greatest bands like Zeppelin Pink Floyd Beatles David Bowie like those types of people they have such an expansive discography that there are a handful of clunkers at least by each of them that's why Ccr is such a good pick because they had a smaller discography and they stayed consistent they didn't stay together after they had after they were past their peak I guess as far as songwriters go I don't think John prine really had any bad songs i guess i'm not a huge fan of in spite of ourselves but since everyone loves that song i'll defer to everyone else and say that i'm probably just the one who's wrong with that and say that then he does all of his songs are good it's hard to say that chris christopherson had a bad song that he wrote willie nelson and for me johnny cash because i like his lighter fluffier stuff and the comedy things that he did as much as his serious stuff all right cody from vergas Rank these, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Godfather Trilogy. Oof. And I say oof because I'm very embarrassed to admit that... And I'm going to go with the original trilogy for Star Wars because the other two are trilogies, so I'm not going to say any of the ancillary Star Wars movies, prequels, or the sequels, or the contemporary quills, whatever there's been for Star Wars. Of the nine movies, I've only seen two. (laughs) I've seen the first two Lord of the Rings movies, and... Even though Tolkien is my homeboy, I guess I just don't have an attention span for movies that have like six endings. I thought that Lord of the Rings was great for the first hour and a half, I think. Whenever you think it's going to end the first time, I thought it was great. And then it kept going, going, going. So I, I never watched the third one. But once again, like I said with not liking In Spite of Ourselves, that I feel like that's a problem with me and not with other people. Because people obviously get a lot out of it. I'm sure that it's just me not getting it that is the case. So I haven't seen any of the Godfather movies. I'm not a huge movie guy. Like, I don't dislike movies. I'm not like, oh, watching movies is a waste of time or whatever. I don't feel that way. I feel the same way about video games, where it's like, I don't think it's a bad way to spend your leisure time or to be entertained. It's just, I'm doing so many other things. I have so many other interests that I don't get around to them very much. But I do mean to watch, I keep meaning to watch The First Godfather. Oh, wait. I said I've only seen the first two Lord of the Rings. I have also seen the original Star Wars trilogy, I will have to say. And I did enjoy those movies okay. I kind of like the futuristic thing. And, of course, the heroes. journey journey that undergirds it all it's all a pretty cool thing so i guess if i was going to rank them i would say star wars lord of the rings na so godfather's admitting that godfather's probably number one but i can't speak to it because i've never seen it although maybe godfather 3 is so bad that it brings the other two down to where it wouldn't be number one because even though i've never seen all three i know the reputation that one is amazing two is okay three is terrible so take that as you will all right question three zach from rolog some obscure cities today who are your favorite presidents? I'm a huge Lincoln guy. I think he did the best he could for the time that he was living in. He was a very morally upright man. Had flaws, like we all have, and definitely that people of his time had, but he was more clear-thinking than anybody on either side, really, at that point, to know how to get the right things done in a way where they'd actually get done. So he didn't have his head in the clouds and want to push for things that were unrealistic, but he stuck to his principles and got those done in a way that worked. And the only way that worked, really. I feel like the Civil War would have maybe been even worse if Lincoln hadn't been president. He's also just a cool guy. Very good orator, obviously. Very good orator. That goes to show how very good of an orator I am. But he was basically a genius. It's hard to go wrong with Washington. It's insane. I've read, like, a bunch of books about the American Revolution, and it's crazy because, as a general, he made blunder after blunder after blunder. But when it counted, he was able to get things done. And he had the perseverance and the, the character to be able to pull through things that the majority of people would not be able. So Washington, Lincoln, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm a big Warren G. Harding fan, which sounds weird because a lot of people say he's the worst president, and it's partially a bit because I try to defend him because everyone says he's terrible, and also because I went to Harding High School on the east side of St. Paul, so I've looked into him quite a bit, and it's interesting because he was disgraced years after his Presidency because of what's called the Teapot Dome scandal, basically what he did was he gave his friends too much power and gave too much power to people who were manipulating him behind the scenes that he didn't know. So he didn't have that strength of will and strength of character, which is definitely a flaw. But at the same time, he wasn't actually orchestrating any of the illegal stuff that the people around him were doing. And when he died, everyone in America mourned him so much that the train that had his casket went all around America... And in the small window, there's only a few years between him dying and the Teapot Dome scandal being unearthed, there were a lot of schools and cities and stuff that named themselves after Harding, including the high school that I went to. All right, question number four. We're really rolling through these today. This one comes from Justin and Edina. If there's a jukebox available, do you pay for music when you're at the bar? If so, what are your go-to songs, albums, artists, etc.? I will have to say that it's one of my weaknesses when I'm out... If there's a jukebox that I can play songs on to pay for them, because it's such a waste of money. Because you spend $10, right? And for people who don't know, at at bars there are these jukeboxes that you can have an app on your phone and you can put in ten bucks, or you can go up to the machine itself and put in ten bucks. And play, I think it's it's like 30 credits for 10 bucks, but each song is three credits. So basically it's like 10 songs for 10 bucks or something like that. I think it's even more than that, actually. And it's such a waste because you put in the 10 bucks, you play your however many songs you get, and then that's money's done. You have nothing to show for it. I guess you have the good time you had when you were listening to the song. But it, it adds to an already large bar bill that you inevitably have at the end of the night. I do go to bars sometimes to read and write, which... I'm never, I'm never mad when people are loud or when there's loud music because I'm at a friggin' bar. I'm not supposed to be sitting there reading. It's dumb. But sometimes if it just gets too much and I want to concentrate a little bit and there's like inevitably every time I go to a bar that I like, they'll be playing really loud abrasive music from the 2000s, like dance music and stuff, which is fine for what it is, but it's not... It's actually the only type of one of the only types of music that can distract me from doing something else. I can have pop music in the background, rock music, whatever. But it's like if it's abrasive and in your face, it's hard for me to just ignore and concentrate on what I'm doing. So in those instances, I'll play. <laughs> sometimes I'll play uh, like really long Miles Davis songs <laughs> or really long Pink Floyd songs, just so people don't play like the Black Eyed Peas or Imagine Dragons over and over again. One time at one of my favorite bars here in St. Paul. I played like not in a row, but I played a couple of really long Pink Floyd songs and in the middle of the second one, the manager gal skipped it and I was like I played that song and she was like, oh well we have somebody who plays who must who who takes their app when they're walking by or in the bar next door, and they play these long Pink Floyd songs to bother us, so I usually skip them. What she didn't know was that I'm actually the one who plays them. So she thought that somebody was playing a joke, because that's the thing about these jukeboxes, is that if you're in the vicinity, you can play a song for the whole bar to listen to, and you're not even in the bar. So she thought that somebody was playing a prank on them, but, I mean, I guess I was kind of playing a prank on them, but I did want to hear the songs. Mostly I just wanted to concentrate. But... <laughs> I didn't even really answer the question. The question is who are my go-to... Well, I guess I kind of did a little... <laughs> my go-to bands and artists that I that I play. Unless I'm being nefarious, like I just explained. I like to play stuff that's more upbeat. I like to play a lot of old-school country music just because it's fun and it kind of throws people off. One of my favorite songs to play is uh, There Stands the Glass by Webb Pierce. I'll have to say I love playing Freebird. I like to play long songs because you get the most for your money. And I don't mind Freebird as a... As an anthem, it's fun. You got that triple guitar attack. It's got that emotive kind of minor key thing going on. And fun fact Al Cooper, the guy who plays organ on Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, also plays organ on Freebird, which is kind of interesting. I like to play stuff by the band because that usually goes over pretty well, actually. I like to go all over the place. I like to confuse people in that way. Like I'll play NWA followed by web Pierce, followed by the band. So I like to keep things fresh and interesting when I'm doing that. And it's almost like if I had a a show that I was DJ on in general, how I would do it. Sometimes I'm in the mood to hear 90s alternative rock. Sometimes I want to hear rap and metal from the 80s. Sometimes I want to hear old school country. And you'll get three or four of those songs, too. So thanks for that question. That was a great question. And they were all fun to answer, as always. Make sure uh, if you want to send in a question, you email me at eric at ericritland.com. Or leave a comment on my Facebook page. Every week on the Eric Ritland Isn't So Bad podcast, I spend a segment... Talking about one of my songs. This week I'm featuring Help Me Tonight, which came out on the 2008 album Floating Bridge, which I recorded with my alternative rock band of the same name. And I'm going to be re releasing that album in September, on September 18th, in fact, if everything goes according to plan, of course. And just last Friday, I released the first double A sided single to kind of promote it, Promises and Help Me Tonight. And last week on the podcast, I talked about Promises. So this week I figured I would talk about Help Me Tonight. This was one of those rare songs where it all came to me basically right at once it probably took me under an hour to write the entire thing i'm not even exactly sure where it came from or what i was going for i mean i wrote it a long time ago so that might be one thing but most songs like i know like a lyric that maybe inspired me or something around me that i incorporated into the song but for this one, it just kind of came, it just came to me, which it's kind of funny because I say that doesn't happen very often, but it does happen a lot with the songs that I feature on this, and it will in the future too, because of the probably 500 plus songs I've attempted, and then the around two to 300 that I've actually completed, there's maybe around 50 that I actually want to release, and of those, only a handful just came to me. But those handful that just came to me are my best songs, and every songwriter will tell you that, that the best ones just come to you. There's a lot of times where you'll work on a song, and it'll get a lot better, and the more editing that you do, the better that it gets, and that happens a lot, and... A lot of times the best songs take the most amount of work as well. There's a lot of different ways to do songwriting, which is kind of what's so much fun about it. But the the really cool ones and the really trans the the ones that are really transcendental are the ones that just kind of come to you that you realize you're not the one who's really writing it, you're just kind of receiving it. And this was kind of one of those. I will say that even though I don't remember a lot of what went into it with what I was thinking or what I was going for when I wrote it, I do remember exactly how I felt when I wrote it. There's a lot of songs, like most of my songs, I don't remember like where I was or how I felt, but this song, I remember, I just kind of sat down and it just came to me. The one influence I did have was my one of my biggest songwriting heroes was a guy named Nate Hogue. As a matter of fact, he produced the Floating Bridge album, and I would love to go... To his shows, and he was kind of like a folk singer. As a matter of fact, he had an album called Folk Star. And I would love going to his shows because he would play in these alternate tunings, and he'd play open chords, and he'd play all this wacky, random stuff that was a little more advanced than where I was at. So I would try to duplicate that without knowing how to do it. Which was kind of cool, because then I was influenced by it, but I wasn't copying, which is a really great place to be when you're writing. So I do remember sitting down and thinking, I don't want to write a song like Eric Rittling. I've written enough songs like me, I want to write a song like Nate. And I did that a a handful of times, but this was to Nate specifically, and with other artists too. It's a really fun way to write if you're not just copying. And that's what that's what's (laughs) kind of nice about the way I go about it, is that my lack of being able to... Do exactly what I hear helps me take what I hear and want to make something more different than it would. Like, for example, if you're, if you're trying to write a song that sounds like, I don't know, Led Zeppelin. So then you create a song that sounds just like them, then it's not really creative. But if you say, I'm going to write a song like Led Zeppelin, you don't know how to copy them. So then you take the essence or a song, a, a title of a song or a feel of a certain era and you filter it through yourself and you try to let yourself go and kind of daydream through it, that's when you can really write great stuff when you're being influenced by something else. And like I've said before, everyone's influenced all the time. So I sat down to write this song, and what makes it so much different than what I had written up to that point and with the Nate influence was for the verses, I do like a muted thing for the chords, and I practically whisper the verses, which is really interesting and kind of cool, especially in the recording of it, because... I whisper in the verses, and the choruses and instrumental breaks are super heavy, thanks to the guitar playing of Drew Peterson, who really adds a lot to this track. So when I was writing it, that was really the big difference between really anything I'd written up to the point point. anything I'd written later was the the use of dynamics, and the, the whispery part in the verses are very folky. Although song, chord progression-wise, is very folky, even though it gets heavy during the rest of it. And it's actually kind of an interesting juxtaposition to have the quiet parts and the heavy parts in the same song. But it's still able to flow really well, and that's really important too. The lyrics are kind of interesting because there's some stuff that comes off as really self-confident, but... It's also a plea for help, obviously, help me tonight. So kind of like the music, the lyrics are also two very different things in tension that still work as a cohesive whole. So that was, it was just, it was really fun. It's it's cool how that stuff comes together without you even trying, because I wasn't even trying to do any of this stuff. And I, honestly, like, it's really just coming to me now when I'm talking about it, which is really crazy. So one of the lyrics in the song is, Dawn is coming, but always fades. It's all I want to be. It was influenced by a poem, and I don't know who the poet is, Or what the name of the poem is, but when I was in high school, one of my favorite teachers, who was just a super ridiculous eccentric, read this poem, and it was something like, who would want to be the dawn, or something like that, and there was a gal in my class who said, you'd be the prettiest part of the day, and my teacher was
1: just totally
0: flabbergasted, and everyone thought it was really funny, just because it was so direct, And just kind of had a a cool, whimsical kind of feel to it. And I've never forgotten that. I actually had a song, another song that I wrote around the same time. Actually, it was probably a few years before that. And it had the line, Who would want to be the dawn, the prettiest part of the day, a life so simple it would go away. It's like, just that's just like a... A throwaway simple line that I had, but that's just a testament to how much that stuck in my head. And I still can't find that poem, so if anybody can find it, that'd be cool. And I can't even remember the exact line either, so I'm not much help. I talked a little bit about how the verses are a whisper and then the choruses and the instrumental breaks are really heavy. Well, that's thanks to Drew Peterson, one of the guitar players in Floating Bridge, and man, did he love this song. I remember when when I do gigs with other versions of the band, because the Floating Bridge personnel, I don't know, chart or history or whatever, a lot of people go in and out as guitar players. It was me on rhythm guitar and vocals and my brother Chris on drums and Kay- Casey on bass, Casey Carver. But guitar players kind of came in and out and there was one point where bu- there were two guitar players other than me and sometimes Drew would play with gigs, sometimes Ed would play gigs. Sometimes both of them would. That might have only happened once, though, but I do have a recording of it. Very poor recording of it, but I, I think I still have it. But when we do shows where Drew wasn't a part of it, we would never do Help Me Tonight because it was kind of hard to put forward the whispery parts in a live setting. But Drew would always want to do it when we did shows with him because he just rocked the heck out. Here I am censoring myself, mostly because I don't want to put the E next to it, so it'll get more clicks on Spotify and iTunes. But man, does he really rock. And it, it really comes across super well, so kind of surprisingly, on the recorded version, because it's really hard sometimes to get down in the studio the spontaneity and the heaviness of a really great guitar part like that. But he did it so well. And I, I if I recall correctly, he did it on this... guitar, this like Bud Light guitar. No, not a Bud Light. It was just a Budweiser guitar, like a Strat that he bought. And it just had the raunchiest sound. And it sounds really great. And I love the recording of it because, once again, Chris has a really great performance. My rhythm guitar just sounds super cool. Thanks to Nate, of course. And you have my guitar. I think it's in the left speaker and Drew's in the right. And the combination of both of those just it warms my heart every time I hear it, because I think of writing the song. I think of being in the band with those guys. And it's it's just really cool to look back on that and to remember the, the times that you had as a songwriter in a band. One last thing before I play the song. You'll notice that there's crowd noises at the beginning and at the end. And I'm pretty sure it goes through the whole thing. Like, it goes through the verses. Yeah, it does go through the whole thing, because you can hear him during all the verses. And when I first wrote the song, I thought to myself, man, this kind of seems like the kind of song that you'd want to have the sound of just kind of people talking in the background of it. For some reason, that just came to me, and I thought that would be kind of a cool thing. But I had completely forgotten about it, and when I showed the song to Nate, Nate actually told me, he was like, you know it would be really cool in this song? If There was like people talking kind of like either at a cafe or like before a show or whatever. And I was like, man, I thought that as well. And I so it was kind of one of those crazy creative times when you're on the same wavelength with someone. And when that happens artistically, that's really cool. So we recorded on a phone like it wasn't even an iPhone. It was a really early version of cell phones. We recorded the like social hour after a church that gathered at a coffee shop in St. Paul. Uh, Nate's wife was a, a pastor at a church, still is actually, Humble Walk Church in Minnesota, very cool place, very cool people too. But anyway, back on topic. So we recorded, or he recorded on his phone, everybody talking after the service. And obviously it sounded really bad, because... I feel like if we did it on an iPhone right now, it actually would have sounded decent, but it just sounded so terrible. But when I gave the song to my friend Chris Yeager, who did the mix, the second mix and the master of the Floating Bridge album, he was able to add really professional sounding voices talking like you were in a cafe or whatever, because he had access to a lot of different stuff because he was at McNally Smith College of Music at the time, now defunct R.I.P., So that was really cool. I I was kind of happy how how that came together. So yeah, enjoy it. Help Me Tonight, the second side of the double A-sided single that I came out with last Friday as a preview for the Floating Bridge album that will be reissued on September 18th, 2020. Yeah Songwriting insight number four, be influenced, but don't copy. For the first series of final thoughts on the Eric Ritland Isn't So Bad podcast, I'm going to be talking about some of the foundational methods for how to be creative. They're the things that I keep in mind when I'm writing, and it's kind of a window into how I do it and what my philosophy of songwriting is. But at the same time, it's also, or I should say they're also, just foundational rules for songwriting in general. It kind of goes beyond me. And are just kind of tips for how to best be creative. So, songwriting insight number four. Be influenced, but don't create. (laughs) Or You want to create. (laughs) Be influenced, but don't copy. And then create. (laughs) I talked a couple weeks ago about the importance of listening to lots of different kinds of music. And paying attention. And this is definitely related to that. Because you want to listen to lots of different stuff. You'll always have in your mind the things that you're most influenced by. And the things that you love the most. Because like I said in that, when I was talking about that songwriting insight as well, what's inside of you and what ends up coming out and what you create has to do with what you love and what you're going for. And so what you create is necessarily going to be influenced by something. It's definitely a popular thing to think that, or to have the presumption that you can do something that's completely original, or that originality is the foundation of being creative. You want to be original. You want to do something that's completely different. Well, this just in, that's not possible. There was a biblical writer that wrote, there's nothing new under the sun, and that was in like the 6th century BC. (laughs) So everything that you do is going to be influenced. When there's music that just wants to be original, and that's the only thing that they're going for, it ends up being, or can end up being, really trite. I always like to use the analogy that it would be original to do something like randomly clap for a half an hour. Nobody's ever done that, but... How creative is that? How interesting is that? There's a side of an experimental John Lennon album from the late 60s of just John and Yoko saying each other's name over and over again. Everyone who thinks, oh, I want to be as original as possible, listen to that and say, okay, that's original. Is is that what you want? (laughs) There's so much more to being creative than being original. There's having a craft. There's creating something meaningful. Having layers of of meaning in your lyrics and having layers of overdubs that make a cool sound in the recording itself. Or even different approaches you can take. You can uh, you can say, I'm going to do it solo. I'm going to do it with a group of three people. Or a group of 30 people, if you want to be like Sun Ra or something. But even he, going off on a tangent a little bit here, Sun Ra did everything from solo piano pieces to cacophonous stuff with like 30 people. So there are a lot of ways to express yourself or to create something that that never gets old and it can never get boring and originality then is an important part because you don't want to do something that is completely like something else and that's where the second part of this comes in be influenced but don't copy because you well I guess I'd say the what I sometimes call the cult of originality what they are going against and I'm sympathetic to this is people who just copy something completely that came before them and don't try to think outside of the box at all. There has to be a tension between knowing your influences and allowing yourself to be influenced by them and also wanting to do something that is different from that. And a great catalyst for that is, and this is where it is about you, (laughs) a great catalyst for between being influenced and being original is how you want to express it. So when it comes to songwriting, it's really important to have those things in the right order. You don't want originality to subsume everything else, to pretend like you're not influenced by stuff, because everybody is. You don't want to be subsumed by the influence, so you just copy everything, and then it's not about, or it doesn't come from you at all, it's not personal or individual, which that has to be in there too. And then if it's all just personal, then you get rid of the influence, and you get rid of trying to think outside of the box. It just becomes about you. That throws everything off. So you have to have those three things. Be influenced and listen to a lot of different stuff and know that you're influenced by the stuff that you love. Also, you want to think outside of exactly how the stuff you love is done. And that's where your personal artistic vision and your creativity comes in and the place that is about you comes in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eric Ritland Isn't So Bad. To check out my music, visit ericritland.com. For more about the podcast, ericritland.com slash podcast. Read my work at musicinminnesota.com and buy. in addition to checking out my archive at ramblingon.net. Eric Ritland Isn't So Bad is also brought to you by the Midwest Metropolitan Music Association, your number one source for creative music. Although we are unquestionably living in the best time for quality music in history, it's impossible to sift through all the chaff on websites like Reverb Nation, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp to find the best music around. So Midwest Metropolitan Music Association does the heavy lifting for you, serving you the best independent rock, Americana, country, folk, blues, and more. Find out more at MidwestMetropolitan.Weebly.com. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll catch you next Wednesday.